Um, so just while um, everyone's the next plenary is being set up, I'll just very briefly introduce um, Tanya and Justine Lloyd and Kate Bill, who are going to um, talk about listening interventions in relation to the listening project. Tanya Dreyer, obviously, <laughs> um, who is um, the AOC uh, Future Fellow here at UNSW and Scientia Fellow. Um, and on the far right of me um, is Justine Lloyd um, from Macquarie University, um, Sydney. She's a senior lecturer in sociology. Um, Justine has published in areas of feminist cultural history and media studies and has a forthcoming book on intimate geographies of media. Then in the middle here we have Kate Thiel, who's, Thiel, sorry, who is Dean and Professor at the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and her research focuses on listening as a strategy for social justice and the rights of people to, with disability and Aboriginal peoples. Um, and Kate's recently published a series of chapters and articles on how claims for the intersectional rights of women and Aboriginal people with disability are heard across different policy fields. So thanks, um, Poppy, and thanks, uh, Leah, where you are. Um, thank you so much for such a wonderful um, uh, plenary and overview of your work, where it's come from, where you're going. And I know we had very uh, brief time there for questions, but hopefully some of the themes and some of the uh, discussions that are emerging from that might continue across our plenary. Um, so we're just going to speak quite briefly, I think about 10 minutes each, and then we'll have some time for discussion at the end. Before we start, I just want to also acknowledge that we're on Bidigal land and also that I work at Macquarie University, which is on the land of the Watermagal clan of the Darug Nation. And I just want to acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging and um, pay my respects to all Indigenous people here today. Tanya put this plenary together and asked us to think back to 10 years ago when we started the listening project, as it was then called. And I have this flashback to this moment of standing outside the tower building at UTS, which, as you probably know, is not a very friendly environment. <laughs> and there was this um, colleague, Tanya, standing there with another colleague, Penny O'Donnell, who I also want to acknowledge as a really important founding member of the listening project. And uh, Tanya and Penny, we were both going into this seminar, and I don't remember what the seminar was about at all, but I remember Tanya saying, let's do something about listening. And it really struck something with me where it seemed such a uh, generous invitation, um, also such an important moment to think about listening. I was working on this book, which is eventually going to come out sometime next year, uh, which is from postdoctoral research I did about gender and broadcasting and particularly radio and how before second wave feminism radio particularly women's radio provided a place for a whole um, diverse range of people to get access to the public sphere and the ways in which many of the women working on those programs were actually challenging the public private boundary in ways that then later really came um, Sort of into a wider discourse in second wave feminism. So listening meant a lot to me at that moment and first thing I did was say let's have a reading group or someone said let's have a reading group and we went off and read uh, Susan Bigford and also the work of Roman Coles and both of those authors I think gave us a sense that there was a wider history there and that we were really able to bring something and deepen it from our perspectives, our individual perspectives but also I think there was something in that work, and I think Liz picked up on it, about a prefigurative politics of listening, that listening actually is something uh, that 
is quite utopian and quite hopeful. And so what I'm going to say is really about that hope and that utopian moment and where that needs to go next. So Leah asked the question, what is done with listening? What can we do with listening? And I think that's really important to me and sort of helps map the trajectory of where we've been in the listening project. So I'm going to sort of talk about listening, um, the listening turn itself as an intervention. Then I'm going to talk through some of what I think are the stuck points of listening where I think listening does get framed and contained and that was very much um, the piece that I wrote for the continuum issue which was that came out of the first round of uh, workshops we had in listening project which uh, Leah's referred to um, but sort of how I've thought through some of those stuck points and the last point I really want to talk about this hopefulness and think about listening as a form of action in itself so how it can actually map onto some of those actions and some of those um, demands on the state which Leah's talking about. Um, so I think what we were doing in the listening project when we first started was to take listening and try and bend or shape it away from individualization. That was our really first starting point and to break listening apart from atomization and just sort of endless listening rather than thinking about some of the um, wider forces that shape it. So we opened up the black box of listening, I think, <laughs> at that point, with the help of um, Bickford and Coles and other, other sort of readers. Um, we read alongside those people to think about a definition which could be used to evaluate and think about other kinds of political listening beyond active listening. Active listening will solve everything. Active listening is the panacea of that kind of move. So we wanted to then, I think, map how different models of communicative action have been marginalised, so that listening's always been going on, it hasn't ever stopped, but it's been marginalised and it's been turned into this sort of very uh, domesticated kind of interpersonal moment. And we wanted to think about how different types of relationality and action could be reanimated out of that. And I think all the work that came out of the listening project over that time has done that. So by the very, from the very beginning, um, we were supported by ARC network funding, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was explicitly funding not to do research. It was just to have conversations and bring people together. And um, I think that sort of work really needs to be funded. Um, and I think Tanya's managed to continue it today. This is still happening um, because Tanya's built it into her project, but it's something that's um, a methodology that I think really needs to be used. Um, so what came out of that was that we started to have these conversations about what listening could potentially be, how it could be this practice which couldn't be just contained back into this cosy interpersonal idea. And I think what we started to do was realise how listening could be made accountable. And I think that's what Leah's just given us an example of. So not necessarily that it's built into every policy or political decision, but in all of those moments there's a sense of the tensions and the possibility of not knowing what the outcome should be. And I think alongside solidarity, the diversity angle of listening. So the fact that in what Leah's just described, it's that coalition building, it's a um, sense of bringing people across differences to listen to each other, and that not being something that's then sort of fed up into some hierarchy, but actually about those tensions. And I'm sure um, people have thought about that. So this is one thing that we found out about listening is it works very well across diverse coalitions and that's where it's really best practiced. Um, but the second point, which is where I'm going to think about these stuck points, um, is in research I've been doing with colleagues at Macquarie University, uh, Nicole Matthews, who's here today, and um, Rebecca Kim and Isabel Boivre in um, audiology. 
And we've been thinking about professional listening and audiology as political. We spoke about this yesterday in our paper. But what I sort of pull out of that is thinking about um, points in listening where not only across coalitions, but I think this, the reflexivity of listening needs to happen. And that has been a very um, another part of the black box that we've opened, I think, with um, talking to the audiologists. The audiologists um, talked to us about listening and problematizing listening is that um, audiology is, uh, as the informants have sort of described it to us, takes place in a very commodified, very technologized profession. And a lot of the practices of listening, um, you know, apart from the auditory side of listening, which audiologists are thinking about all the time, but they're actually um, listening to life experiences, listening to clients, thinking about the wider structures that listening takes place within, um, was getting bracketed out and wasn't being allowed to happen. So one of the interviews that really um, helped me think about that was um, an interview with a retired audiologist who's still teaching audiology, and she talked about how she actually arranges listening in her rooms when she's seeing clients and how she actually positions the table. And I started to really think about the materiality of listening. In another paper yesterday, Lurishia Faranati, I think it was, talking about her book, The Force of Listening, talked about listening and how it comes from feminist consciousness raising and how there was this thing that the interviewees and when they started reflecting on listening was about cups of tea, cups of tea, cups of tea, <laughs> was this phrase that came up and up again. So having cups of tea and then preparing to listen and the materiality of that, the way it's choreographed. And this interviewee talked about how she actually wants, um, when someone comes into her room, for the person to sit next to her, not across the desk, as I am now, but sitting right next to her, and she would actually show them the paperwork that she was filling out. So it wasn't something that she held as the expert and they were just being you know, checked off against. It was actually, she used it as a listening moment. She used this paperwork to go through and ask them about their experiences. And that, to me, said there's some really interesting questions there about practices, so how are they embedded? How do they materialise and what tools do people use to choreograph listening? So setting up the room, um, making people feel that there's already a relationship, those things before a listening actually happens. So that's the second point is when listening is self-reflexive and when it understands how it's a process that's shaped by wider discourses and structural forces, which came up very much in the audiology interviews that people talked about this commercialisation, they talked about the medical model, they talked about the social justice and how these different discourses were playing out in the listening moments. <coughs> and the third thing is <laughs> where I'm just going to finish. Um, so I was really struck by this in Megan's keynote yesterday about how certain voices had to be bracketed um, when the work of the Re referendum council was going on and she talked about elders having to leave the room or be told not to speak because they were already prejudicing the outcome of the listening. They were saying, this will never work. You will never get any change. It will never happen. And they were almost um, uncoupling listening from hope. So I think um, the way that she talked about it was that these First Nations dialogues needed to proceed hopefully. And thinking about listening and hope and how they go together and listening is a hopeful practice I had, echoing my phrase yesterday, um, a phrase I heard in a talk by Jim Rommelt, who's the Australian director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which won the Nobel Prize recently. And she talked about hope with teeth. And there's even something in there about that, that it couldn't just be this hopeful, it's exhausting, right, to hope forever and nothing to happen in a, maybe Obama 
got caught in that at some point. Um, but the campaign that she was talking about, Jim was talking about, has been using listening to nuclear survivors in very interesting ways to develop a treaty-based approach to banning nuclear weapons and is currently working for Australia to sign and to ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And they point out very much in this listening when they're getting people to listen to these survivors that um, worldwide nuclear weapons are the only weapon of mass destruction that has until now not been banned by international treaties. So they identified this as the reason why people needed to listen because this is where they wanted to end up. So I sort of did a bit of dicking around about this phrase, hope with teeth. Where did that come from? Was it something that Jim had come across herself? And I found this essay by China Mieville, I think his name is, who's a fantasy writer and activist. And he wrote this essay on utopia where this phrase popped up. So he's talking about utopia and he's saying, you know, what is utopia? Why are we always hoping for this to happen? It never happens. Is, whose utopia is it? He's sort of questioning the whole idea. And I just thought this was such an um, interesting way of thinking about hope. So he says, is there a better optimism and a right way to lose hope? It depends on who's hoping for what and for whom and against whom. So we need, must learn to hope with teeth. And as I um, think this third factor really needs to be highlighted, and this is the question of what to do with listening. So um, I think listening works best when it's linked to action and when that action is deeply strategic. So for example, where the legal gaps exist in, um, such as the ones being addressed by ICANN, or in the democratic deficits that Megan was talking about yesterday in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So in describing my hope for a listening project, it's that it grows teeth. So I'd like to add to the acknowledgements that we've had uh, about the country on which we're meeting today and also add an acknowledgement um, to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands uh, I continue to work but also on whose lands the listening project began. Um, so Tanya and Justine and I were all working uh, at UTS uh, in 2008. Um, Tanya and Justine have kind of moved further afield. Um, I'm just down the road at Notre Dame, but that, that was um, the kind of first meeting place of the listening project back in 2008 uh, and continues to, to be, um, thanks for Tanya's generosity for making some new trips up from Wollongong uh, and Justine, um, a site where we continue to meet. Uh, to develop um, most recently some of the ideas that we're talking through today um, and also to thank Leah for an incredibly generative plenary this morning. Um, I kind of felt like uh, my talk is, is almost redundant um, because so many of the themes that emerged are conversations that I really hope that we can continue. So. Um, one of the things that I wanted to pick up on this morning was to talk about that tension that Leah articulated between uh, a micro-politics of listening and work on the idea of the kind of challenges of scaling up listening and questions around uh, the, the possibility and the desirability of institutionalising listening. Um, and I think that this theme and this question and this tension also has a lot to do with some of Justine's reflections on hope. Um, so the, the kind of, one of the key interventions 
that I think has emerged out of paying attention to listening is really shifting uh, one of the, the kind of dominant ways of, or some of the dominant ways of thinking about political listening and thinking about listening in policy contexts. Um, so some of those ways Justine's unpacked in terms of thinking about uh, in, in a kind of uh, case management mode of thinking about the way uh, that therapeutic listening and active listening can be profoundly depoliticising, um, can be a, a kind of mode of um, governmentality in terms of shaping subjects in particular ways. One of the other kind of dominant models of listening that is often exercised in a policy context is uh, consultation. There's long been criticisms of consultation as tokenistic forms of listening. One of the things that I think the listening project um, and the, the kind of broader work around listening has achieved is to really unpack, you know, what specifically is it that's problematic about tokenistic listening and to give us some ideas about how it might be possible to imagine different types of listening uh, that are not tokenistic. Um, so one of the, the kind of challenges with consultation is that it's often quite monological. Um, there's not an opportunity for dialogue. Uh, people's claims are heard in the moment, but we don't really get a sense of the extent to which those claims are heard at different levels and different stages of the policy process. Um, and the extent to which they're able to shape policy outcomes, um, there, there's often not a kind of continuation of engagement where groups that might have been heard at the consultation stage are allowed to, to kind of monitor the implementation of uh, the policy intervention. So the listening project has helped us, helped us to kind of unpack, and, and this is Bickford's idea of uh, continuation, um, that listening is something that often happens in contexts of difference and inequality. It's something that is not about coming to a consensus. It's not about kind of warm, fuzzy agreement. Um, it's often about hearing things that are challenging uh, and how we can continue to act together in the face of those differences, in the face of that inequality, in the face of those challenges. So one of the key interventions I think that's emerged out of the listening project is to think about those possibilities of continuation. So listening is not something that happens in a monological way, uh, but something that needs to be ongoing um, and that needs to happen if we're thinking about listening in a policy context at a whole range of different stages and levels of the policy process not a kind of ticker box exercise at the beginning uh, that is often more about kind of building political support or consensus than it is about genuine listening. Um, often the to tokenistic element is that element uh, that I think Leah referred to a few times in her talk this morning where there might be kind of isolated parts of uh, a narrative that are picked out um, and but the listening isn't happening 
necessarily on the terms of uh, people that are kind of standing up and, and demanding a voice and demanding to be heard. One of, so, I mean, we've, we've got a sense of, of listening that is uh, different to the, the type of listening that often happens in policy contexts, listening that is more open, uh, more attentive to the differences between us and the differences that shape us, and listening that aims to, for, for a possibility of continuation and for ongoing uh, action and intervention. I guess then one of the challenges is how can we think about, how can we imagine the possibility of um, scaling up that kind of micropolitics uh, in a way that retains um, some of the, the kind of interest in local context, uh, in listening practices that are important to the policy context that we're talking about, the relationships that might be important to a particular policy context. How can we scale up listening in a way that prevents it from um, kind of being domesticated, from being turned into um, a very institutionalised and managerial approach, something that turns back into a kind of tick-the-box exercise. I think one of the answers um, is to think about and our role as academics in terms of engaging with uh, and listening to some of the claims that emerge out of that micropolitics, um, that we don't necessarily need to come up with a theoretical answer to that question, but uh, some of the most productive work that I think has emerged out of the last 10 years um, is actually taking listening out of academic spaces and uh, to listening to some of those micro-political claims and to the strategies within those particular contexts um, for thinking about uh, how to scale up listening. Um, so I've done some work with uh, the First Nations, uh, First Peoples Disability Network in Australia. Um, and one of the really interesting things about that organisation uh, who has worked alongside government on the implementation of the National Disability Scheme uh, within uh, Aboriginal communities around Australia. Uh, Damien Griffiths, one of the, uh, the CEO of the First Peoples Disability Network, um, after, after all that work and after, after all that kind of work alongside government, uh, after uh, having a number of contracts as consultants, um, still makes the claim that meeting the needs of Aboriginal people with disability is one of the most crucial social justice issues in Australia today. That we have the solutions, we need governments to listen. Um, so it's really interesting to think that there, there has been continuity in that relationship. There has been ongoing engagement and yet there is still a sense of not being heard. Um, and one of the really interesting things uh, 
about the way in which First Peoples uh, Disability Network have been heard is that they have still been heard uh, on, on kind of deficit terms. Um, so their claims about the fact that they're in, in all of our many um, Aboriginal languages that there aren't words for disability are seen as a kind of gap, as a problem, as a challenge uh, for service delivery, rather than being seen as potentially a strength, um, an, a different way of thinking about impairment, which focuses on inclusion in community and inclusion in community practices. Um, so there is, is that sense of, you know, that there's an element of those claims that are being heard and plucked out, um, but the challenge to, to deficit discourse that uh, First People's Disability Network are really trying to make, uh, that's not being heard by government. Uh, and so one of the I think one of the possibilities for thinking about how we can look at micropolitics alongside a desire to scale up listening, a desire to have transformative change beyond a particular moment, um, to think about a hope for a new kind of politics, uh, is actually to start with the micropolitics and, and to listen to what's being said about the kinds of transformations that are required. Maybe I'll leave it there because I, I would like to have an opportunity to continue the discussions. Um, so you can ask me about recognition. <laughs> Kate and Justine and Leah and um, everyone. Um, I will try to sketch the points that I prepared so that we might steal a little bit of time in this short session for some discussion and, and with, with Leah as well. Um, so again, the idea here um, is uh, an opportunity to uh, reflect and also look forward um, after 10 years of work in the Australian context with others um, in the room as well as with um, Kate and Justine um, centred around this idea of listening and then approached and developed in quite different sorts of ways. So I will try to mention three what might be kind of achievements or interesting things that have emerged, three challenges um, that I see at this point. And then, as I say, try to leave some space for some discussion. Okay, so the first thing that I wanted to at least mention um, was the possibility um, uh, whether it might be interesting to think about a feminist politics of listening or to think about listening as a feminist intervention, as um, a framework or an understanding that has maybe kind of developed, um, if not been named, um, over the time that we've been doing this work. So I'm definitely not saying that all listening scholarship or practice is feminist, not by any means, nor am I arguing that feminisms in all their diversity and broadly defined have the monopoly on a politics of listening. But I do think it's worth marking the significance of feminist-inspired work on political listening, especially as much of this work is not explicitly named as feminist, not often brought together um, <coughs> under that label or framing. 
So one angle that I won't do much on but others do beautiful work on is the um, idea about how our work shifts the political value of listening, which is so often gendered as feminine. So it's passive, it's receptive, it's private, where speaking and voice is public, active, agency and all the rest. There's lots of work to be done from that starting point and lots of interesting work does happen with that idea. More importantly for me, we know that there's a really long and important history of feminist debate and theorising on the ethics and politics of speaking. Really vital work, um, incredibly influential and important. Um, and so what we might call critical race feminism has been the starting point for many of us, um, including people speaking today, in terms of thinking about listening as in some way being able to contribute not only to continuing those debates but widening um, the frame, particularly the frame of responsibility. So we've already heard um, of, uh, you know, we've heard mention of course of um, Gayatri Spivak who's, you know, famous, famous essay, Can the Subaltern Speak, really in many ways raises much more urgently the question of, you know, um, can the privileged listen? Can the, um, can the dominant listen? Um, Gloria Anzaldúa, we looked at in the, in the workshop, there's um, a whole range of really important feminist work that really lays, uh, lays the groundwork and I think has um, inspired in many ways um, thinking about listening. So a feminist politics of listening, maybe, or is that not a great idea? Um, a key contribution, um, number two, my second point, um, and this is the point that um, Leah has already flagged, I'm most um, known for or whatever, is an emphasis on the way in which attention to listening can shift responsibility when we're thinking, uh, or we've heard the idea about it can um, attention, bring our attention to accountability. So the prompt here is the concern that a politics of voice might leave the responsibility for change or for just or democratic outcomes with oppressed voices, with racialised communities that deliberately silence the preferably unheard. So in contrast, a politics of listening might foreground the responsibilities of listeners and particularly the more um, privileged and powerful and others have already reflected on the way in which this was very much um, central to our opening plenary yesterday, where um, across the opening of the, the, the three speakers, we were asked to take responsibility for, um, uh, for listening, for sticking with the discomfort and the unsettling of listening, and a listening in which we're asked to take responsibility for ending ongoing systemic colonial violence. So definitely what do we do with our listening or what comes after listening. I'd like to just at least mention the third um, sort of, you know, I think intervention that's, that's um, uh, a third intervention that's been made is around the idea of recognition. So if this is a highly uh, influential theory of social justice, and there's plenty to critique as well, but lots to work with. Um, the um, uh, work on recognition presupposes all sorts of ideas about communication and culture, and yet communication is relatively under-theorised within this framework. It's there, but it's, it's like Justine said, it's the black box. And so Kate um, and others have done really valuable work to analyse listening as the practice which might ensure the outcome of recognition. So if the recognition frame seems to presume this, and this is Kate's argument much more than mine, or you know, she's, she's published this. If the recognition frame seems to presume that the moral force of voice or story will somehow ensure the outcome of recognition, 
The focus on listening gives, I think, a much more complex understanding of the processes, the practices and the difficulties, the dilemmas of recognition. So I think that's been an exciting thing to come out of the work. Um, and then my three challenges. I think one challenge, and it's already been marked, I won't say very much, um, but is to really push listening beyond a liberal frame, beyond the man managerial, the organisational, also beyond the friendly, the interpersonal, also below, uh, the, you know, these are different traditions, also be beyond deliberation, deliberative dialogue, um, uh, liberal civility and the like, um, to you know, really think about the ways in which these frameworks can uh, limit or depoliticise or domesticate what for many of us is the real motivation around grappling with listening, which is an interest in a transformative politics, the unsettling potential of listening, the uncomfortable and difficult work of um, uh, listening. That's certainly what has really energised me in working in this area for a long time. Um, and so to, to you know, push beyond the liberal frame, to insist on an intensely situated, deeply contextual, power sensitive um, and uh, transformative um, account and to really um, yeah, be, be very much um, animated by the sort of historical legacies of colonialism, for example, the contemporary contexts of um, uh, violence and deep contestation as being um, what motivates the work, and as Justine says, where we might have some hope that listening might might offer something. So I think that's something very different than a project of developing a kind of general theory of good listening or active listening that can then be rolled out and deployed um, across all the different settings. Um, challenge number two, um, and it relates back to the idea that uh, I think listening, uh, the listening work has made um, interesting and important contributions around recognition. Um, I'm increasingly interested in thinking also about listening and refusal. And here, um, of course, I'm uh, listening to and responding to really important um, emergent First Nations scholarship here, um, Glenn Coulthard, Audra Simpson and others the resurgence literature that Leah's already mentioned, um, which also very much um, uh, unpacks this idea of um, refusing the politics of uh, recognition. And I'm wondering if there's a way to think about um, listening and refusal as well, not only listening as a practice that might ensure recognition, but the, the idea of um, refusing dominant ways of understanding, screening out as much as listening in, thinking not only what are the, the um, marginalised voices and the untold stories, but what is it that needs to be unsettled, decentered, moved aside, ignored or refused um, in order for the different listening to take place, in order for the hierarchies of listening and speaking to be rearranged, unsettled or maybe even um, transformed. Um, so, uh, Leah, you talked about the idea about listening and, and rethinking, and I think there might be some connections here, um, and, and the example of the need to refuse the multicultural success story, to refuse um, the discourse of borders and citizenship in order to develop new forms of migrant justice organising in coalition um, with First Nations activism. And then my final uh, challenge uh, that I wanted to raise 
Um, is a concern um, at the, um, the potential or perhaps even the reality um, that the um, attention to the politics of, of listening as we've been discussing it um, runs the risk potentially of recentering whiteness or recentering the privileged and powerful. And here, of course, I'm thinking of um, Sarah Ahmed's caution around the project of um, whiteness studies and the risk of recentering whiteness, even as we um, you know, are motivated to critique and challenge. And so, as I said, I think one of the, the um, really important achievements of, of listening work has been to shift responsibility around to sort of put the privileged and powerful and powerful institutions on the hook into the picture under analysis and under critique, but there is um, very much there, I think, a challenge into how to do that work without simply um, uh, re-centering or um, yeah, refocusing in that way, and I definitely mark myself in that sort of um, project. How do we um, maintain the interest in, in shifting focus, shifting attention, shifting accountability around without that um, uh, uh, recentering dynamic? So I hope those might be, um, yeah, some reflections on achievements and uh, limitations and also an invitation then to um, a little bit of further conversation. Thank you.